0: Okay, with uh, this introduction, um, I want to present the first speaker, Konstantin, Konstantin Gerbert. Gerbert? Ge, ge, yes. Uh, he is uh, an international reporter and columnist uh, for the biggest and I think most influential newspaper in uh, Poland, Gazeta Wyborcza, that was founded by Anna Miknik, uh, the famous uh, Polish uh, dissident, and uh, Mr. Gebert is also affiliated with the European Council on Foreign Relations and is at Fero. Please, the floor is yours. Ten minutes. Um, and okay, thank you. Um, and I will ring the floor the historian of the Warsaw
1: Ghetto, wrote in his (coughs) notes on Polish-Jewish relations during the war, there probably was not much that could have been done by the Poles to save Polish Jews from German murderers. But was it really necessary for Polish Jews to go to their deaths in in indifference, at best, if not outright hostility of their neighbors. He himself experienced not only indifference and hostility, but also help. He was smuggled out of the ghetto, hidden in a bunker on the quote unquote Aryan side of Warsaw, and then denounced by other Poles. All the inhabitants of the bunker were executed by the Germans. But this experience of going to their deaths in the indifference or hostility of their neighbors seems to have been the universal experience of early Jews. And we need to ask ourselves why. There is an entire range of factors that all work in the same direction to ensure that this, in fact, would be the final experience of early Jews. Although, and it has to be remembered, thousands of Jews risked their lives to save Jews. In occupied Poland, that is, nowhere else in Europe, the penalty for helping Jews was death. And that penalty was implemented not only in respect to the offenders, but their family, their neighbors. Um, Some of the documentation of the German courts in Warsaw uh, has as being preserved, and we find a death sentence for a sixty-year-old lady who was convicted of giving a piece of bread to a Jewish child. Three German lawyers signed on that bad verdict. She was executed on the same day. So though thousands of Poles did risk their lives, um, this was certainly not the dominant reaction of those civil society. And those who survived usually support this view, saying, well, there were those who helped us. We could not survive the German occupation without some Polish help. And those people were extraordinary. They were saints. Everybody else was at the best indifferent, if not hostile. Why? Um, I will give you a series of reasons, and then we can try to discuss which were the most important ones. First of all, of course, there was the feeling that the fate of the Jews is not an issue for Poles. <coughs> this feeling preceded the war. Poland was a country bitterly internally split along ethnic lines. The Jews were the second largest minority. One third of the population was national minority. The Ukrainians were the largest minority. The three and a half million Jews um, were the second largest national minority. Student. And um, most of the Jews considered themselves ethnically Jewish, not ethnically Polish, and certainly were seen as non-Polish, non ethnic Polish by the Polish natives. A shared civic citizenship could have remedied that, but there was very little grounds for civic citizenship in interwar Poland. Um, the Polish majority considered Poland the nation-state of the Poles with the non-Poles being tolerated guests But certainly not equal partners in building the country. The war exacerbated the feeling that national identity precedes everybody else. This was, after all, the dominant ideology of the victors. The Germans were teaching Europe that blood counts, certainly not a little piece of paper that said that you're a citizen of this or that. Not only that, but not only the Polish state was destroyed. Polish civil society was destroyed. In the German plans, folks were to survive as a slave population. Therefore, it was primordial that they be those slaves. Um, The Germans concentrated on destroying Polish leadership. Groups that were considered potential leaders were systematically murdered. This included the intelligentsia, specifically targeting university professors from Athens, but also Catholic clergy. Um, there was no possibility for civil society to take an organized stand. But more than that, ordinary Poles were suffering to a degree unimaginable in occupied Western Europe. Of the six million Polish citizens murdered by the Germans in the war, three million were Polish Jews, three million were non-Jewish Poles. Um, most of the Poles were too busy surviving themselves to give even a thought of helping anybody else this accounts for the indifference but why the hostility two separate sets of reasons explain that one was anti-Semitism anti-Semitism was a very popular ideology in pre-war Poland uh, a desperately poor country where the idea we're poor because the Jews aren't to carry some traction and german anti-semitism met uh, as elsewhere in europe a fertile ground for development and the Polish on the ground reports clearly said i quote that anti-semitism is the one narrow bridge on which the german occupiers meet a segment of Polish society and that anti-semitism did not disappear under german occupation it's exacerbated but also, there was the feeling of benefit from the extermination of the Jews. Many Jews who were in hiding on the, quote, Aryan side, reported hearing folks say that um, after the war we'll have to build Hitler a monument. He solved the Jewish problem for us. We would have never been able to do what the Germans are doing. And on this, I think, that this was a fair assessment, Polish anti-Semitism was spiteful and hateful to us and murderers. But after the war, we will have a Poland without the Jews, which is what we had always wanted. Um, there was also the practical issue of benefit. People moved into the houses, workshops and shops, vacated by the murdered Jews. For hundreds of thousands of Polish families, this was a civilizational move forward. The Jews were seen as already dead. <coughs> Uh, in a very characteristic report, a Jewish survivor from the town of in northern Poland who managed to survive the deportations and murders, said that on the evening before the deportation, her Polish neighbor came to visit and said well, can I have this uh, scarf and uh, those shoes? You won't be using them anyway. Uh, It may seem grotesque But from the perspective of someone who actually doesn't have the same shoes, the idea that it would be more moral for nobody to have those shoes isn't obvious. In all fairness, though the horror of this sentence doesn't evade me, it is not obvious for me either. And the problem is elsewhere. Benefiting from somebody else's crime makes you complicit. You might not have wanted the crime. You might have even privately deplored it. Okay, there are Jews, but they are also human beings. If you benefit, become complicit. You suddenly have an interest in the crime going unpunished. You will lose if the crime fails. This is what happened to Jewish survivors, who after the war would return to their village, say to reclaim some property left with christian neighbors imagine being the christian neighbor and having the bad luck of having your Jew survive when everybody else's jews are conveniently dead no think about it so everybody else gets to keep this house this bed this coat and i should give it up this is not fair And Jews are dead anyway. What's this Jew doing living? You might think that um, there should be a moral reaction to this. Think again. Poland was invaded by an army of Goethe's and Beethoven's, by the leading European nation, the leader of European culture, civilization, science. And if those people spent so much effort to exterminate the Jews, at the detriment of their immediate benefit. The Jews were a skilled labor force, the Germans could exploit. They preferred to murder them and use unskilled Polish peasants in their stead. They needed desperately their trains to transport their troops, especially after they started losing the war. And yet using those trains to transport Jews to death camps had a priority. If this is what the leading European nation believes is most important, I, I'm a poor, illiterate Polish peasant, whom am I to say they're wrong? But okay, they're the enemy. Maybe that's what makes them wrong. The Allies don't seem to mind. As of 43, all of Poland was within the range of Soviet aviation. As of 44, all of Poland was within the range of Western Allied aviation. Nobody bothered to bomb the camps or the tracks that led to the camps. Um, The Americans and the British repeatedly bombed (coughs) Monowitz, a village in southern Poland where the Germans had set up an artificial rubber factory. The death camp at Auschwitz was five kilometers away. Those planes overflew the camp. Not one trough bomb fell. Well, if the Germans, the leaders of Europe, are so determined to exterminate the Jews. And the allies don't seem to mind whom am I to say otherwise? But maybe it's not a material issue. Maybe it's a moral issue. Well, the Church would have spoken out. that. The Church doesn't. If there seems to be this consensus that killing Jews is a good thing, or at least it's not a bad thing, if I individually stand to benefit and our nation collectively as well. So what is the counter-argument? Yes, of course, the counter-argument remains. Without it, we wouldn't have had those thousands of bulls who risked their lives to save Jews. But do appreciate it was a weak counter-argument <coughs> in the face of this overpowering evidence. Bottom line was... It was simply not a good idea to be Jewish in German-occupied Poland. (laughs) And if you have this bad idea, don't blame it on somebody else. Thank you. (laughs)
0: Uh, Anette B. Wodekamp who uh, is a historian and uh, leader of uh, the National Center for Scientific Research in uh, France and she has published uh, several works on France and the Holocaust and the faith of the Jews in uh, France and this is also the issue
2: we're going to talk about today. So it was obviously a better idea to be Jew in France than <laughs> And actually, one part of the Jew, of the Jews living in France at the time, came from Poland. It was the case of my family, and I have a Polish name, even if I cannot speak in Polish. So, most of the Jews in Poland were killed during the war. 55% of the Jewish population in France survived. It's uh, a little worse than in Denmark, but it's uh, far better than in Netherlands, 20%, and in Belgium, 50%. So there is an exception also uh, in my country. So it's very difficult to sum up in 15 minutes or 10 minutes uh, uh, what was the situation of France. I think that we have to take in consideration many parameters. The first one is what was the German occupation in France. It was very, very different of what was the occupation in Poland, for example. And when you shift from a country to another, I just come back from Auschwitz. I spent one week in Auschwitz for a (coughs) documentary. When you compare the two countries, it seems that the occupation in the German occupation in France was a very, very soft one. And we have also to think about who were the occupants, the Wehrmacht, the military power, what was not the same that the German embassy and then the Gestapo. So you have many apparatus which were sometimes (coughs) repeated even on the Jewish question. The second parameter is the French government, the so-called Vichy government, the French state. (laughs) It chose to collaborate with the Nazis and it chose to have this kind of false independence in the so-called free zone that is the south of France. Where Chambon-sur-Lignon was. That was till November 1942, when <coughs> the when the free zone was suppressed because the department uh, in North Africa. The French society was, of course, not uniform, and it's very difficult to speak about. Uh, society in a wall. And the Jews themselves, they were part of French society. I want to give you an example. With a colleague, I wrote a <coughs> history of Drancy Camp. Inside the Drancy Camp, I copied the title of Christopher Browning's last book. In Drancy Camp, you had the we were organized <coughs> and there was a Jewish chief of the camp it's not a Judenheit, something else uh, it's quite complicated, but all the men who were at the head of uh, this uh, uh, camp, the Jewish were converted one was Catholic the other one the other one was uh, Protestant and you have to think about French Jews as part of society, French society, with differences with immigrants <coughs> mostly from Poland, and refugees from Germany, Austria, and Czechoslovakia. So you have three parts, the refugees, with problems which uh, seem very much like uh, the problems in Denmark immigrant, which a part of them became French, and old French Jews, which were not, we, we don't consider themselves as Jews. And we have to think about what is a Jew. A Jew is a Jew during occupation, because he is defined as Jew by German occupiers, or in the case of France, by Vichy France. Jews are very, very unnumerous. If you look at Western Europe, you don't have any country with Jews uh, more numerous than half, 1%, 0.5%. So it's a very, very tiny part of the population, which is a, a big difference with Poland, of course. So, you have also, you have also uh, to to think about the, the evolution during the war. 1944, French was occupied by Germans, and the Germans uh, issued uh, a lot of decrees against Jews. The first one was the census, but at the same time the French state also uh, made decrees against the Jews. So you have at the same time French legislation and German legislation. For example, the census, it was a military, uh, the German military uh, power in Paris, which order the census. But the census was made by the French administration. Jews had to go to offices and to declare that they were Jews. Almost all the Jews did that. But one year after, May 1941, when the Germans decided the first arrestations of Jews to put them in the so-called mm-hmm. camp du Loiret, bonne la rollande half of the Jews did not came to the convocation. They escaped. So, you have to take in consideration what the Jews did themselves to save themselves and it was what I want to stress in my essay in your book is that the Jews were never passive but you have to take in consideration what was the <coughs> liberty which was given to them if you compare to Jews in ghetto there was a tiny, tiny, tiny uh, zone of liberty in France it was larger So you have the first part, which is from 1940 to 1942, which is mainly the time of decrease of anti-Jewish legislation. And after that, you have the time of massive arrestation and deportation. What was the public opinion of the population about that? From 1940 to 19, uh, uh, till the middle of 1942, they don't care about Jews. They were indifferent. There were no movement to help Jews, and maybe there was no need to have <coughs> this kind of movement. Because for most of the Jewish families, life was half normal. Uh, children go to school. Uh, people continue to work uh, even if uh, the, the property were loaded but it was not an <coughs> abnormal situation things changed in <coughs> 1942 first in June the obligation to wear the yellow star and that was north uh, and the French people don't like that because in the Republican culture, it's forbidden to wear signs. For example, at school, you don't are allowed to have a cross if you are Christian. So there was a great movement of solidarity um, for these people, especially child, children, because you have to wear the young star till six years old. <laughs> and uh, then the first uh, the first round uh, <coughs> massive roundup uh, the so called on July 1942 and in the free zone uh, roundups in August <coughs> then there was a shift in public opinion <coughs> and uh, at that time churches and uh, a lot of people help the Jews. So I think that it's change. Thank you)
0: the perspectives are very different uh, from different parts in Europe. Uh, and I think that will also be the case with our final speaker, which is uh, Antoni Georgiev, who is a journalist and a writer of both uh, fiction and uh, non-fiction. And he has been working for the BBC World Service in London and Radio Free Europe in Munich. When was based there during uh, the Cold War. Uh, Georgiev is going to speak about uh, the fate of uh, the Jews in Bulgaria, which has some similarities uh, to October 43 in uh, Denmark, but also very important uh, differences. The floor is yours, uh, ten minutes please.
3: We're trying to listen quite attentively to what was being said uh, in the first days of the conference, especially last night. No. Does everybody hear me? No. 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 Is this is this working now? Right? No. Is it working now? Yes, it should. Testing, testing, testing. One, two, three. three. It's to be a little bit closer. Yeah. I was trying to listen quite attentively to what was being said at the conference yesterday and uh, today. And last night, as I was listening to Bob Bent and uh, William, uh, I sometimes closed my eyes and I got this very strange feeling of déjà vu. Am I in Denmark? I said. Am I not in Bulgaria? <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly the same story. It's exactly the same players. The arguments are the same, and um, at the bottom line is also the same, people who say it. In the case of Denmark, about 10,000 people did not die. And in the case of Bulgaria, 49,000 people 49,000 people did not die, because Bulgaria did not them. Now, of course, to compare Denmark and Bulgaria, of all places, is very, very far-fetched, especially these days, because <laughs> Bulgaria had, had the misfortune of having, having communism for 45 years, which Denmark didn't. But then, um, if you want to internationalize the Holocaust, If you you want to really bring um, um, a large perspective to what happened during the Cold War, you should not be constrained to Western Europe only, because speaking of Western Europe as opposed to Eastern Europe is Cold War terminology. The Holocaust happened in all of Europe, and at that time there was no communists, there was no iron curtain. There were countries, some of them were richer, some of them were poorer, some of them had democratic institutions, some didn't have such good democratic institutions, but it all all happened in, 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 in the whole of Europe. Now, coming back to Bulgaria and Denmark. Denmark, (coughs) of course, it was occupied nominally by Nazi Germany and it chose the policy of uh, cooperation with Nazi Germany. Bulgaria, conversely, was an ally to Nazi Germany. It was a part of the Axis. But it was a very reluctant ally. It did not send any troops anywhere. It did not provide the Germans with with a lot except what was uh, absolutely necessary. Uh, It did not allow even free passage of German troops to Bulgarian territory on their way to Greece. Denmark and civil society, so did Bulgaria. The Danish fishermen who took or did not take payment to to transport Jews across the Sound to Sweden uh, did did that because they belonged to civil society. So did the Bulgarians. The trains were waiting for Jews and that happened six months before it happened in Denmark. In Denmark, we're talking October 1943, in Bulgaria, we're talking March 1943. There was a huge uh, preparation to transport 20,000 Jews, full shipment of Jews out of Bulgaria to Auschwitz, directly to Auschwitz. Uh, Two days before that, and this illustrates the power of civil society, uh, the deputy speaker of the Bulgarian parliament, an MP who belonged to the ruling majority, which was, of course, pro Nazi at the time, he wrote a petition to the king, which was signed by 43 MPs for the ruling majority to stop the deputations. The king didn't care very much. I mean, in a very typical fashion for kings, he went on holiday, he disappeared. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the prime minister, who was pro-Nazi, cared a lot. Then that petition was joined by, by various pronouncements by members of the senior clergy, orthodox clergy in Bulgaria, including bishops, who are now in the rights among the nations. Then there was a demonstration of support for Jews by many intellectuals and it turned violent in Sofia, it turned, it turned violent because the police intervened and arrested the whole of the, of the Jewish leadership plus other people who were, who were supporting them. But, so this illustrates, the, I mean, in the middle of the war, at the height of the war, we're talking in 1943, the I mean, darkest period of European history. You've got a uh, Deputy Speaker of Parliament, of a Nazi ally, Signing a petition against, you know, Nazi policies towards the Jews. <coughs> the story has a backside to it as well. And that's what I was seeing last night. In Denmark, the backside is whether <coughs> the fishermen took payments or not. Whether uh, 28 people, as far as I remember, were turned. Uh, was it 28 people? 28 Jews, German Jews, were turned back to the chance for us and apologized last year. Yeah. Okay. The dark side of Bulgaria is that, to understand the dark side of Bulgaria, one needs to look a little bit further back into Balkan history. And uh, I have no time to, to go into details about this, but very briefly. Bulgaria joined the Second World War on the side of Germany because it was led on by promises by Hitler that it would regain territories around Bulgaria which it had lost in the First World War and in the Balkan Wars before that. And I'm talking about parts of southern Serbia, I'm talking about northern Greece, excluding Salonika, but including the Andastas. and I'm talking about uh, the parts of southern which Bulgaria had lost to Romania the, the, the delta dugout, the, the dugout of the delta river in uh, northeast Europe. So, Bulgaria, did, uh, these territories had been lost, as I said, in the wars, and they were uh, ethnically Bulgarian m- more less ethnically Bulgarian Bulgarian considered them and so on so when Bulgaria joined the Axis that was celebrated as a, as a national <coughs> victory, everybody was extremely uh, including, including the Jewish community of Bulgaria because one of the um, one of the big ideals of, of the Bulgarian nation state was to, to incorporate Macedonia and then those territories into itself just a few months later the Germans marched into Yugoslavia they had a very very heavy war in Yugoslavia, they went, entered Greece through Macedonia and Hitler kept his promise. He did deliver those territories to Bulgaria. Now formerly, those territories were not occupied by the Bulgarians, legally speaking, because their status was, was to be decided once the war was over. But in fact, Bulgarian administration ran these places. There was Bulgarian police. there was Bulgarian, uh, Bulgarian army, uh, Bulgarian schools, the language of schooling was Bulga- installed as Bulgarian and everybody in those who lived in their territories was given a choice you can adopt Bulgarian citizenship and if you don't want to adopt Bulgarian citizenship, you can still stay here but you are not going to enjoy the privileges of citizenship except the Jews the Jews were singled out they were not allowed to adopt, to adopt Bulgarian citizenship now these people, 11,343 were rounded up 10th of March 1943. I will never forget that day because my birthday is that of March. They were rounded up, they were put on cattle cars, they were transported by Bulgarian troops and police through Bulgarian territory, on Bulgarian trains. They were transported to the Danube River, they were taken by ships all the way up to Vienna, upriver, and then straight to Treblinka. None of them survived. This is a story, this is a story which Bulgarians would not admit, now. They are, including on, on government level, you know, just before I came here, in March, this year, Bulgaria marked the 5th, 70th anniversary of the rescue of Bulgarian Jews. But there was a declaration by Parliament, there was a declaration by the Prime Minister, um, hallowing uh, the, the very courageous act of, of saving 49,000 people from Bulgaria, but not mentioning the word, expressing regret about what happened to the, to the Jews of Macedonia, and southern Serbia and northern Greece, but just falling short of producing an apology for what happened. And this is something that I think will take many years to come to terms with. This is something which, which um, because of communism, Bulgarians have not learned to, to live with, and, and, and they don't even have a word for it. And uh, the best word to describe this feeling is, is actually German. It, it's called uh, uh, the resulting of the forgotten kind," which means coming to terms, not only understanding, but coming to terms with the past. Realizing that nothing in your history is black and white. Because nothing is black and white. There are many, 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 many shades of gray. Again, we come to a philosophical question. Does it matter? We've got... Forty nine thousand people who kept alive. You've got whether uh, anybody took payment in the case of Denmark or did not take any payment against Bulgaria, doesn't matter, because people who saved. Uh, just to illustrate how how complicated this can be, I'll give you one very brief example of what happened to Jews in in this territory, Southern which belonged to Romania, but which changed hands. Uh, under pressure from Hitler, from the Romanian government. And that was one of the very few instances of peaceful changing of borders in pre 2nd World War Europe. It's something like what happened to Cedric Holstein between Germany and Denmark after the First World War, Uh, but there was no referendum, of course, because we're talking 1938. Um, Simply Romania ceded that territory. And that territory, which is not very large, contained Jews, and there were Jews living in that territory. Uh, those people, when they were they deported, because they were in Bulgaria, and they were Bulgarian citizens, they were actually very thankful to the Bulgarian king, for having sided with Hitler. You know, they had Hitler to thank for the fact that they were saved. This did not happen in Greece. It did not happen in Macedonia. It did not happen in el- anywhere else in Europe. But there is this tiny little piece of territory with Jews living in it which, uh, where nothing happened to And that was, illustrates, once again, the duplicity of history. It illustrates the fact that you cannot really pass judgment on, on events, because events are what determine our uh, lives. And this chain of events is very fragile. In the case of Bulgaria, if the king was more resolute if he didn't procrastinate all the time. If the church leadership had different composition, if, 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 if it hadn't been so outspoken as it was, if one MP did not start the petition, if he hadn't been joined by 43 other MPs, if doctors, lawyers, uh, artists, writers did not protest to stop the plant deputations, if one of those things hadn't happened, there would have been no salvation. There would have been no rescue. Everybody would have been... The trains were waiting. Yeah. But, thankfully, this happened. Just one more thing. Um, it's very important to, to, to stress that the, the history of this is not very well known outside of the Balkans. And the main reason for this was 45 years of, of communism. You know, the pop, the Jewish population of Bulgaria after the war uh, actually exceeded the Jewish population of Bulgaria before the war. Which is kind of unique... In, in, in Europe, By 1950, it had decimated down to less than 10%. Before. Why? Because all of those people left. Most of them went to Palestine, then Palestine, the state of Israel was just been founded. Many of them emigrated to the United States, especially the west coast of the United States. Some of them settled in. <laughs> Very few people remained in Bulgaria. Under communism, that story was not told. Like elsewhere in the former Eastern Bloc, the official line would speak of victims of the Nazi regime, omitting the word Jews. I had the chance of going to Auschwitz in Poland in 1984. There was no word Jew, there There were victims, victims. Uh, Now it all changed, of course, but now it's starting slowly to change in in the Balkans as well. After the collapse of communism, politicians in the Balkans, and especially in Bulgaria, realized very soon that that this is an important event which can be used. So proclaiming that Bulgaria saved so many people has become a kind of political priority for for the current politicians in Bulgaria. The good thing is that research is slowly starting to be done. The bad thing is that it's still very romanticized. It's very, um, it's very difficult to, to produce uh, to produce facts and to produce, especially to produce opinion, which does not conform to, to the mainstream political thought. And uh, but uh, you know I'm a very obstinate person, and this is uh, what I'm doing at the moment, and this is what I intend to be doing for the next few years. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, we have about half an hour um, I intended from the outset to um, to ask our panel to comment on one another but I think we'll refrain from that given the fact that we just have 30 minutes so uh, I think we'll immediately uh, open up the floor for uh, for questions and debate I just want to remind you please identify yourself and your affiliation. Um, and uh, yes, first question over here, please.
4: My name SOS Racism. I'd like to thank you, all three of you, for your um, very inspiring speeches. But I have a question to France and to Bulgaria. Um, I've been uh, teaching French for 40 years and um, I've been studying the Dreyfus Affair. (coughs) I've been teaching it in my classes because I've said to my uh, students you don't understand France if you don't know the Dreyfus Affair. So I'd like to ask uh, a little about history and uh, I know that uh, the newspaper Poutine has a letter from Solan, who thanks uh, for the support given in the Dreyfus Affair. And I could be wrong, but uh, I believe that France is very divided in, uh, in its view of the Jews. Another person, the best writer in my opinion, Georges Bernanos, uh, was very anti Semitic until the uh, Munich conference, where he was so ashamed that he emigrated into Brazil and wrote his uh, wonderful book, Les Transanglais. Uh, so, that is my question. Is it right that France is so divided and has it uh, been playing a role in uh, the view of the Jews during the Second World War? And then to Bulgaria. Um, I've seen in the uh, Danish television uh, emission about uh, the Bulgarian Jews and I was uh, told there that uh, the Bulgarians don't understand what we call the Judenfrage, because they are so um, multicultural, they are used to Armenians, to uh, Rom- Romans and uh, to Jews, that uh, it doesn't tell them anything. This mission was made in the memory of the Macedonians, so uh, I'd like to ask
2: you these questions. Thank you. Okay, okay. please. Uh. So it's a, it's a very difficult question. i um, I try to answer quite quickly. Yes, you are right. There was a French anti-Semitism. And this antis- anti-Semitism was also anti-French Revolution, and uh, uh, reactionary at the fundamental meaning. And uh, there were very famous person, moras at the française Bardesh, and others. After World War I, something changed a little. And, uh, for example, uh, Barrett's Uh, counted uh, the Jews among the spiritual families in France. But in Vichy, uh, in uh, in the French state, PETA for example, these people are closed from Moras, And you have also a more modern antisemitism with uh, some uh, very very right-wing uh, organizations uh, which were at the right of the Vichy government, what we call uh, we, we called uh, Vichy collaborators uh, and we call this movement collaborationista that means that the think that uh, uh, Pétain was too soft so you are right but it's very difficult to uh, to, to tell uh, what was a part of the French population yeah. who was we agree with this thesis. There are two ways of seeing the Dreyfus affair. First, Dreyfus was accused. Then Dreyfus was acquitted. And he was acquitted because there was a large movement of uh, intellectuals and uh, and the left wing and journalists and all these people who fight for Dreyfus. Uh, I, I I I want to tell something I have forgotten, uh, which has no relation with that. In France it was just like for your fishermen in Denmark. They didn't nobody risk something in helping Jews. Uh, it's a main difference with Poland. And no one was arrested and uh, shot and deported because they helped Jews. Sometimes someone was in the resistance and helped Jews. But if uh, for those uh, people were only rescuers, there were no risk. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Georgiou.
3: Yeah, um, I, I don't actually agree with, uh, with that I don't think that the Bulgarians don't understand the Jugendfrau uh, they understood it very well then and they understand it very well now before Bulgaria even joined the Axis in the second world war the Bulgarian parliament adopted anti-Semitic legislation it was called the Protection of the Nation Act which was modeled on the Nuremberg laws in Germany and in some parts it was actually stricter than the Nuremberg Laws, in some parts it was not as strict as the Nuremberg Laws. But it was, it was passed in Parliament and it became to be enforced before Bulgaria joined the war, which is in 1942. <laughs> now, the result again, this, this does not change the result, but the, uh, the motivation of why uh, civil society in Bulgaria prevented the planned deputations will probably remain a mystery forever. Uh, it's a combination of many, many things. One of them being uh, the social fabric of, of life, in, not only in Bulgaria, but in the Balkans at the time. It was de- very different from so- the social fabric in Denmark, it was very different from the social fabric elsewhere in Europe, except the, the neighboring Balkan countries. There have always people, variety of people, living there, v- a variety of ethnic groups, Turks, Gypsies, Armenians, all kinds of people. But um, what uh, determined the outcome of events in Denmark, which is the the institutions of the state, civil institutions, was not the case in Bulgaria. In Bulgaria, Bulgarians helped Jews because they were neighbors. They were helping their neighbors, as they would help Turks, as they would help Armenians, as they would help because they were living together. Uh, It wasn't institutionalized. It was put on a more uh, day-to-day level, uh, on a more uh, uh, sort of mundane level. <clears throat> Again, to make some connection to France, I would like to mention a major French philosopher, who happens to be of Bulgarian origin, Svetanov. You wrote a book about that. wrote probably mm. the best book about mm. that. Uh, it's got, I strongly recommend it to anybody who's interested in in, in these things. It's called um, The Fragility of Goodness. In that book, he, he argues that yeah. just as everything evil that happens has perpetrators, and those perpetrators have names, they're people, no. you know, they can be named, they have addresses, they have families. In very much the same way, if something good happens, like the non-deputation of, of Jews from Denmark and Bulgaria, it has to be attributed to people, there are individuals who have committed those things. They may have acted in a network, they, ma- they may have acted in an organization but still there are people who do it, because without people can't do anything like this. So, um, yeah, this is basically the answer to the question, and they are very much understand it now because even now, anti-Semitism is very much alive elsewhere, everywhere in the Balkans, including Bulgaria. They have been numerous cases of antisemitism. Fortunately, it's not after people. Fortunately, it's science. It's spraying of graves. It's uh, two attempts to, to burn synagogues down. That kind of thing. But it has not. There has been no violence against. Uh, possibly because there are so few, so few Jews left in Bulgaria. Thank you. There's
0: a question over here, and then over here. Okay,
5: it works. Uh, hello, my name is Mind. Uh Bosnia-Herzegovina, Sarajevo, although I'm a day now after being indoctrinated to the Humanity in Action Fellowship this summer. Um, what I would like to give is a very brief comment, uh, because the name of this panel is Different Perceptions and Different Realities. I think that pretty much every country has a different perception and different reality of the what happened during the Holocaust. Uh, same goes for my country. Unfortunately, we cannot be so proud about saving such a huge number of Jewish people. However, we did save the Haggadah, which we are very proud of. Uh, on the other hand, I do have to say that uh, I think we're forgetting something, and maybe I'm just turning off a bit of from subject here. This would be maybe more could be related more to the previous panel, but we're not talking about the survivors very much because I think we're we should be interested in their position because I had a I had a wonderful experience talking with some of them, and it's interesting how some of them say that they were in exile when they were, and the others say they were saved. So I was just wondering how do maybe. Jewish people in your countries, or you as experts perceive this whether these people were really saved from something bad or they were like forced to choose between two really bad things and go into exile in order to preserve their lives so I was just wondering how do you feel about this about this duality this I, I, I would like to address that question to Mr. Gilbert.
0: could you please um, answer it if you have something to say
1: um, there is no general answer you yourself have heard different answers. It really depends on the individual identities, individual faiths. Um, given the nightmare that Jewish life in the by Poland was, everybody, of course, was extremely happy if they missed that. The interpretations to put on it later depend on individual circumstances. I don't think you can even think of getting it in
0: Thank you. There was a question over here. Okay, the young man. And then
6: up here. Hi, I'm Szymskiewicz. I'm the senior fellow from Poland. And uh, I would like to um, ask you if you could differentiate uh, the different reactions to the Holocaust in the context of uh, uh, social groups, social in in terms of uh, their economic (coughs) status and um, if if there was any uh, difference and uh, how uh, the reaction to um, how the resistance to the Holocaust was organized um, and this question especially I would like to point to uh, Mr. Gebert uh, uh, and I'm thinking about uh, Zhegota and uh, I mean, this is kind of reaction to uh, the statement that there were um, individual saints, as you as you mentioned. Uh, don't you think that uh, some of the uh, resistance towards the Holocaust was uh, organized in a more sophisticated way? Okay. Did you,
0: anyone, you one of you who wanted to comment on the first part. I think there was a specific question to uh, Mr. Giebel
2: on uh, Je it's, it's very difficult to speak about the resistance. What we know is, and uh, mm. the <coughs> speakers this morning explain that very well. You have a Jewish resistance. It depends of what you uh, what is the definition of resistance if to resist is to do something which is against the plans of the Nazis, to save themselves as Jews is a kind of resistance and if you look at all the networks and especially those who go to, to Switzerland most of them were organized by Jewish organizations. The second problem is what people imagine. I'm going to tell the story of uh, Saul Friedlander's parents, uh, which is recorded in Quand vient le souvenir, When Memory Came. It was in the center of France, near les uh, and then um, they were roundups and the parents tried to imagine <coughs> the situation they placed him in a catholic institution and uh, tried to escape to Switzerland they failed uh, they cannot pass the border and they were given to the French police who gave them to the Germans who deported them to Auschwitz As a researcher, Sam Friedlander found the regulation when you were with children, you may enter Switzerland. So if his parents had not imagined that the best protection was to put him in a government just like in Denmark, they leave the children in uh, Danish home they will have saved Saul and themselves so these stories are always very complicated because to do something you have to uh, analyze what the situation is you have to be able to read the situation and it's really difficult to read a situation For example, uh, it's difficult today to read the situation in Syria, and it's one of the reasons why the international community cannot act. So, the first thing is to understand what is going on. And uh, I fully agree with. I am sorry, but I cannot uh, remember every names, but the the last speakers about uh, Denmark. No. French Jews thought that it was not a good idea to be deported, but they did not know that they are going to be exterminated. I read hundreds and 100 letters written from Drancy by people who left. Most of them said we are going in a concentration camp which is located in Metz. Metz was a town in East France where the train changes. From Transcy to Metz, it was French railways. Then it was Reichbahn. So, I don't know if it's an answer to your question.
3: I would like to. Yeah, I would like to add something to pro- him. I would like to add something to, probably not in direct response to your question, but uh, something which is important. What has the power of civil society taught us? The events that Denmark and Bulgaria saved the Jews during the Holocaust. To what did that lead? Uh, in the case of Bulgaria, not very much, I'm afraid. Communism came. Bulgaria was one of the first countries. 1940s. 546 was the first country to organize war crimes tribunals. And in those war crimes tribunals, many hundreds of real or imaginary war criminals were, were tried, and many were sentenced to death. The number of death sentences passed in Bulgaria outnumbered the number of death sentences passed at Nuremberg in Germany. In absolute terms, we're talking a huge number of people, thousands of people were shot. some of them had nothing to do with the Holocaust but they were not simply communist sympathizers the whole civil society was completely disintegrated by a system which even though nominally different from the Nazi system was far more penetrating and far more permeating because it lasted for 45 years until 1989 now Bulgaria in 1985 uh, took steps which in my opinion were the precursor of ethnic cleansing in in Bosnia and in in Yugoslavia. If anybody would remember, in 1985, it was not very much in the news, because that was behind the Iron Curtain at the time, but the Bulgarian communist government forcibly Bulgarianized one million Turks. One million Turks. Percentage-wise, Bulgaria is the uh, the, uh, member state of the European Union with the largest amount of Muslims who are not immigrants. Germany has more. Germany has 4 million Turks, I think. But Bulgaria doesn't have 4 million. But percentage-wise, you know, uh, the country has a lot of uh, um, Muslims who have been there for 10 generations. They've they've always been there. So, what the Bulgarians did in 1985, they started forcibly... Turkish was banned. People were banned from speaking Turkish. Turkish families were forced to adopt Bulgarian names sometimes with violence uh, there were terrible scenes nobody knew about these things because I was a student in those days in Bulgaria and they couldn't travel to those areas but later on I did research and I can still see cemeteries they renamed dead people You know, they sprayed Bulgarian names on stocks, You know, which is an awful thing to do so 1989 before communism collapsed about 400,000 people left Bulgaria they were expelled from Bulgaria That was the biggest movement of people in post-war Europe, en masse. They all settled in Turkey. A small part of them came to Sweden. They stayed in Sweden for two two or three years and there are uh, heirs to those people uh, living in the the north of Sweden at the moment. But this is the result of, uh, of what communism did to civil society. On the one hand, you've got the 1940s, 1943, where it was civil society which helped save a large number of people. On the other hand, you've got communism in 1985, 42 years later on, which did do nothing at all. There was not one voice of protest against this. It was actually supported. It was actually supported. It is still supported now. If you talk to ordinary people, people who are not interested in human rights or people who are interested in their daily bread, people who are interested in you know, making their, their lives, they would still support this. They would say, yes, of course, we're in Bulgaria, everybody's Bulgarian here. So this is the ambivalence of uh, what civil society can do uh, or cannot do in, in times of crisis, particularly when, uh, when religion, uh, ethnicity, and, uh, and um, otherness are concerned.
1: Okay. Thank you. Mr. So, you know, question for you? Correct. żegota um, was the code name of the Polish underground's Council to Save the Jews, which was the only such institution driven out by Europe. But it was originally set up as an NGO, as a private venture of a group of outraged individuals who decided to pool their resources to help Jews in hiding. And it was only later endorsed by the Polish Underground as an official structure of the Polish Underground state. However, from the perspective of those who were being saved, and that was what I was quoting, Żagota activists Mm -hmm. gave them shelter in their apartments, gave them false identity cards, were individual saints. Of course, nobody was revealing the people in hiding, the underground structure behind it. That would have been (coughs) and totally unnecessary. But back to your original question about um, social makeup in resistance and, I assume, in collaboration. To the best of our knowledge, um, there are no predetermining social factors. The righteous Gentiles have been extensively studied, Samuel Olina, the Hamatek, a number of others of the scholars. They found strictly no social determinants that would favor people um, into resisting this, especially in developing Jews. among Polish righteous Gentiles you have people from the extreme left to the extreme right, from devout Catholics to militant atheists from nuns to prostitutes you name it (laughs) actually prostitutes were a good bet if anything marginally improved your chances was if you turned to somebody who already was marginalized Um, prostitutes members of the underworld, members of dissident religious sects already knew what it means to be a marginalized minority, you could count on more empathy. But that, that, that wasn't very important. Interestingly enough, uh, there are no social factors that pre- that helped or precluded people from becoming collaborationists. The national myth, until recently, was that the people who collaborated with the Germans in denouncing Jews or murdering them were, were the scum of society. We started to study them only in the last 15 years. They were a cross-section of society. There were no scum. You had scum, you had princes of blood. However, there is one psychological feature which features prominently among rescuers and doesn't appear among collaborators. Uh, this is something that in psychological <coughs> jargon is called internal laws of control. And in plain English means, I am responsible for what I do. It is my responsibility to help or to deny help, but I just can't claim that circumstances forbid me from making choices. In other words, the people who risk their lives and would also, many cases, lose them to help their neighbors, were the same kind of people who, under civilian circumstances, are a nightmare. They're the people who will not go along, who will not teamwork, who are cussed, obstinate, demand that people justify why they should do something. I mean, imagine having somebody like that working with you, okay? Nightmare. And yet, that
3: nightmare, it seems to be the humanity's survival mechanism for times of
1: real nightmares.
0: Thank you. We have two questions uh, on the list. i i've close the list. Uh, if there will be time, I want to uh, ask a question myself. But uh, let's see. One up here, and then a gentleman in the back.
4: Hello, my name is Louise, and I'm a student at the University of Copenhagen. I'm so lucky to have Sophia as my teacher this semester. And I would like to ask about France because we just learned this morning that there was a really strong anti German feeling in Danish society. And I guess, I assume it must have been so in France, uh, given history and given history uh, in, war, in war times before. Uh, <coughs> And I would like if you have a comment on that.
2: Ah, Society uh, You are perfectly right. Uh, uh, French people hate <laughs> <the> Germans. <laughs> and there is a range of terms, a uh, uh, range of terms. We had three wars with the German. The first one um, 1870 then the big one, the great uh, World War I, and that uh, that war. So the anti-German feeling was very, very, very strong. But regarding the policy against Jews, you have one part of the policy, which was... Uh, in charge of the French, Pétain. And Pétain was very popular at the beginning of the war, even among Jews. I don't know if there are
0: mm-hmm. Okay, then I, somebody in the back?
1: Uh, I had the mic over because uh, Mr. Giorgi have already answered my question about the
0: Okay, so okay, else. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, we have about four minutes left. <laughs> um, There's a I don't know where they are. Yeah, but I, I want to ask a question myself. <laughs> uh, so, um, um, it's been about 25 years since the end of the Cold War, and you both talked about uh, taboos and the writing of history regarding the Holocaust uh, in Poland and Bulgaria that uh, both were behind the Iron Curtain. Could you say a little bit um, uh, in in what way has the writing of history regarding this issue changed within the past uh, 25 years after the fall of communism? What are the taboos? What, what are the issues that, that the public is concerned with? And I would also ask the same question to you about France, because um, uh, I guess... The Holocaust happened basically in the East, and it's only within the past 20 years that we have had access mm-hmm. to documents about what uh, actually happened, even though there was a lot of knowledge uh, in, uh, in, 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 in the West. But in, in, in what way is the writing of Holocaust history, uh, how has it been transformed in France as, as well within the past 15, 20 years? Can we start with you,
3: Mr. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I don't think uh, I, I'm not quite sure that it's only uh, Eastern Europe. I mean, this type of writing and I mean the asking the asking the uncomfortable questions. I don't think this happens only in Eastern Europe. It, it, it started happening in Western Europe quite recently as well. And I think um, the fall of the World Wall was a was a precondition for this to happen because in 1989, 1990, once the the wall was gone. Uh, people, both West and East, realized they lived in Europe. And this division between East and West was completely artificial. It meant nothing. It was very scary. It was very bad. But in actual fact, it meant nothing to the, to the nations on, on both sides of the divide. And I think that the, uh, the, the more precise moment when this started was around the 50th anniversary of the, of the, of the, of the, of the end of the Second World War, which happened in 1995. I happened to be in Prague at the time, new Czech Republic, and there was a fantastic exhibition uh, I saw, which was called "The Bitter Years," and it was photography, photography from uh, end of this, again a very uncomfortable fact in European history, which is very, very relevant to the Czechs. And those were the deputations of the Sudeten Deutsche after the after the Second World War. Now, it's a very, very uncomfortable thing for the Czechs. I mean, that was organized deputation It was agreed upon by the great powers. Uh, It was supposed to go smoothly, to go fast. Most of those people, we're talking about 2.5 million Germans, Sudeten Deutsche, most of them settled in in, uh, the state of Bavaria, in the federal state of Bayern at the moment. What happened in reality is one million people died, en route. They died of starvation, sometimes they were given very short notice to leave, and that was taboo. I mean, they were the losers, of course. I mean, they were not supporters, uh, one could argue that the, one of the reasons for the Second World War was actually the, the fate of the Soviet Union, etc. etc. But again, these were human beings. I mean, not all of them were bad, you know. So the Czechs started talking about these things 50 years after the end of the Second World War. Uh, as far as I know, in Denmark, one of the first uh, books about, uh, about the uh, rescue action in 1940, Captain uh, Sophie Lenebako was here this morning, wrote it just around the time of 1995. So my my opinion and my uh, my, uh, forecast is that it takes time. Uh, These are things which are very difficult to analyze and very painful to analyze because it's within living memory. I mean, people have relatives. Maybe fewer and fewer from the Holocaust, unfortunately, but uh, there have been other instances of very uncomfortable events in European history that various nations have uh, a great difficulty handling and a, a great difficulty confronting. In my opinion, it will take at least one more generation. It, need, it, need, it needs balanced debate and it needs, um, uh, it needs uh, really a foresight and forethought to understand those events and their complexity. Because, I repeat this for, for many times, but nothing is black and white. We are interested in, in honest thieves. We are interested in, uh, uh, in uh, uh, superstitious atheists. <laughs> we are interested in, in two sides of the same coin, which are sometimes very, very, very different from each other.
2: So, um, in the 80s and 90s, There were everyday polemics. You open your newspaper and uh, show (coughs) how was a uh, topic discussed in newspaper. That is now over. I think that the historical work is done, but uh, it's also other works which has been done by French government or French society. First, trials we had three trials. 1987, Klaus Barbie, a Nazi. 1990, 1994, Paul Touvier, a a French militia. And maybe the most controversial was Maurice Papon, 1998. So for the ju- judicial point of view, it's finished. Then for the material point of view, you, we, we had a, a mission, Mission Matteoli, which was, uh, I was part of this mission, who studied what happened with uh, and all the goods of the Jews who were confiscated in Torsi, Bonarland, the internment camp. And uh, this mission worked three years, uh, wrote uh, 12 or 15 reports, uh, And after that, the money was given to a foundation, Fondation Pour la Mémoire de la Shoah, and uh, (coughs) there was a reopening of indemnisation, which is not finished. And for the symbolic point of view, there was this great discourse of the new elected president, Jacques Chirac, July 1995, who recognize the complicity of France in the deportation of uh, Jews from France. So I think that it's finished. Uh, Shoah is taught in primary school, in uh, uh, secondary school. Uh, uh, Emphasis is put now on riteus and there are a lot of things. But, but, I don't want to be optimistic because uh, <coughs> at the very moment uh, there are big discussions about the so called Rome question. And if you just listen, you don't worry about the reality. You just listen what is said. They spoke about Rome just like it was spoken about Jews. It's impossible to integrate. There is a wrong question. You know, there are fifteen thousand Roma in France, fifty thousand, sixty millions of French. What is the question of fifteen thousand persons? And the rhetoric is just the same. And uh, you taught, you taught, you taught. You say there is a duty of memory. And you have the, the impression that uh, it serves to nothing because nobody is able to recognize the same words, the same uh, rhetoric, the same way of dealing with problems and in the 30s, for example. Thank um, well, for all
1: the similarities between East and West, Mr. Georgian pointed out, You have to remember that World War II ended in Eastern Europe. Fifty years later, it ended in Western Europe. And that after 89, this part of the continent had a huge catching up to do. And um, setting the record straight about the past was not an urgent priority. It is becoming one now uh, for two separate reasons. One is... um, speaking Alia Pervin um, the country feels confident enough to look itself in the mirror there is no longer this knee-jerk reaction that it would be too dangerous to tell the truth because it would harm us it would weaken us it would sully us in the international scene the country feels strong enough to face its own past and has been doing it to a large extent admirably um, for those of you um, are familiar with the debate around Jan Gross Neighbors, the book about the Atlanta Massacre. Um, this, this is a small town in northeastern Poland where in the summer of 1941 Polish Neighbors massacred their Jewish neighbors under German incitement but with no German participation. Um, the debate surrounding that book was after the abortion debate, easily the most important debate of post communist Poland, with 85% of those polled saying that they're aware of this debate. 85% means it's not only the chaplain classes in Warsaw coffee shops, it means it's the peasants and the boondocks. And the debate has truly transformed the country. It has not eliminated anti-Semitism, but it has made an internal debate possible. And further, uh, I'm slightly more optimistic than the <coughs> Uh, The real issue was uh, what Grandpa did during the war. People didn't want to find out because they were afraid to find out horrors. But now that Grandpa is dead, it's not so terrible anymore. And people are actually investigating not only the nation's collective past, but the individual pasts of communities, localities, and families. And in most cases, breathing with relief that the truth is not nearly as bad, although not necessarily rosy, than what they feared to be the truth. Ultimately, what this means is that Poland is revising its national self-perception of innocent victim. Revising the innocent, not the victim. Poland was a victim, but it was a fallacy to believe that victimhood automatically brings about morality. It doesn't. And Poland is maturing up to recognize this.
0: Thank you. I want to say thank you to uh, our three panelists for a very interesting session.